Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, we are glad you could join us for another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and back with me while Aaron 1.0 is on the job is our very own Aaron Hunley. Hey guys. We are excited to talk about the 1999 high school comedy, 10 Things I Hate About You. And hopefully, if you are feeling overwhelmed, underwhelmed, or just whelmed, perhaps this conversation will change a bit of that, even if you are in Europe. So, without further ado, let's give our obligatory spoiler alert. This is a 20-year-old movie. If you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? Go watch it, enjoy it, come back for what will hopefully be a fantastic conversation. I have very little doubt that that will be the case. (laughs) And as we like to do on the show, I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with our one-word takeaways. I watched this movie last night and giggled pretty much the whole way through. I'd forgotten how good it was. And there are so many parts that I could point out as being like my favorite because it just continuously got better as the as the scenes went on. So the word that came to mind for me as I was watching this was the word clever. And I have to tell you, it seemed like every character in this movie really had that character trait. It seemed like everybody was being strategic in the way in which they interacted with one another. The fact that we had folks trying to get two people together using a third person, and that third person was getting money from a fourth person to get a fifth person. I mean, it was just all kinds of bonkers. But I love the fact that not only are the characters themselves clever, I feel like this particular movie is clever in its own right. It is a high school movie. It has got all the good stuff that high school movies should have, but there's something about it, and maybe it's because it's a loose adaptation of a Shakespearean play that make it really, really clever in terms of the story that it tells. In some ways, it feels kind of unconventional. There are beats that are very familiar, but I like how when I watch this, it feels very refreshing for a high school movie in a way that is both comfortable and exciting because I know that what I'm going to get, because I've seen the movie so many times, But at the same time, I also know that it feels different than a movie like The Breakfast Club or She's All That, other movies that I love for different reasons. Ten Things I Hate About You has got something about it that just makes it really amazing. And I think it's the fact that it's cleverly put together. I think that you had this ensemble cast that comes together in a way that seems almost unnatural. You have all these characters that even in their anti-whatever, they're villainy, they are likable as characters because they're fun to watch, they're fun to see other characters interact with, and I don't know that I get that in a lot of high school movies. I think you get a lot of the cliches, but this feels a little bit more mature in that regard. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think for me, um, my one word takeaway while watching it was, I mean, this is one of those movies that I love to revisit, like probably way more frequently than I should. But for me, the one word takeaway was timeless. Um, it's 2019 and this movie celebrated its 20 year anniversary and it holds up exactly as it did whenever it was first released. 
there's something that I absolutely adore about it um, that I know we'll touch on later, but it's it's so 90s in all the best ways um, on top of the fact that it and I was reading an article about it and I 100 percent agree it equally accepts the Shakespearean things that's been placed in the story and then it equally rejects them at the exact same time. And it's just it's such a beautiful depiction of what real feminism is about. It's about like bucking the misogyny that's both externalized and internalized. And I think nowadays it's something that we we all always forget about the internalized things and the fact that like Kat has no problem admitting that she's wrong, that, you know, she does suffer from this issue because she's hated all of the girly things about her sister because that's not who she thinks her sister really is. She thinks it's who the world wants her to be. Whereas no, it's exactly who she is and she's happy with that. So I think that there's a, there's a beautiful message in reevaluating yourself and your belief system to know that you yourself are not exempt from it. And to me, that's a timeless message that can be said year in and year out. And I just, I, this is such a beautiful movie. And in my opinion, probably one of the best, like you said, loose adaptations of a Shakespearean show that I've ever seen. Are you familiar with the Taming of the Shrew as a as a play? Have you have you read it or seen it performed? Yeah, so I actually got my degree in theater, so I've both read and seen it. It has been since college since I have read or seen it. Um, Doctor, uh, don't don't get mad at me, Delance Marsh, for hearing that. If you happen to listen to this podcast, I apologize. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I definitely am familiar with the show, except for the actual show is much more ripe with misogyny. And it's essentially it's about this guy just like not physically beating his wife into submission, but just like turning her into what he wants her to be versus what she wants to be. It's literally the taming of his shrew wife. That's interesting because it would seem like this feels like almost like a response to that. I mean, I'm I'm not familiar with that play. I've got a lot of Shakespearean plays under my belt when it comes to familiarity, but that's one that I actually have not read. And so the way you describe it, it sounds like it both is inspired by and also reacts to what that play actually is because that's not what we see in this. We see we see Cat being this strong feminist lead for legit reasons and rejecting all those things like you said, but we don't see someone trying to maybe beat her down, but she reacts to that in a way that feels very strong, which almost feels a lot more modern and appealing. No, I would definitely agree. And that's why I think I respect this movie so much is that it takes the same concept as I know it's frequently compared to clueless, but it takes a lot of the same constructs and, disassembles them in a way where it can use those exact same constructs as ammo to teach us something. And I think that's why I absolutely love it. It's not something that just falls into those exact same categories and ends up the same way. And this is one of those movies that I actually did not mind her ending up with the guy at the end, because normally I'm just like, like, okay, predictable ending. Kudos. You got the girl like, yay, end of movie. But it was the way that she got through that last half of her journey. That is why I respected the way that it resulted, because it it had her accepting that there were parts of herself she didn't allow herself to feel because she thought that if she did, it wouldn't be what she's actually feeling. It would be what everybody tells her she should be feeling. And instead, she allows herself to fully be with Heath Ledger's character and to except the fact that she does have this much more emotional and fragile side that she's refused to acknowledge since I would assume since her mom passed, but there's no real, we don't have an actual like 
marked moment from before then because we only ever met her after. But there, there's such a beauty in the fact that they literally turn this loose adaptation again into ammo to teach us something about that adaptation while still re- realizing the message within it. Exactly. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy this as well, is the journey to get to what we would consider predictable in a romantic comedy like this that takes place in high school is the fact that they do end up together, but that's almost not the point in some ways. Because the thing that stands out to me about 10 Things that I enjoy the most, I want to I wanna get your thoughts on, on some specific things that might just kind of make you happy about this as well. But I love the fact that this is built around a cast of people. It's not just about Kat and Patrick. It's about other people and how they connect together in different ways. They all have their own agendas, but they're all interconnected by this big scheme of trying to get Kat to date so that Bianca can date. And the fact that when we end the movie, we are equally as satisfied, at least I was, with the way other stories resolved and the way they resolved, not just Kat and Patrick's relationship. I thought that they were a hinge. They were kind of a, a through line throughout this whole movie. But you could, in some ways, easily just as much say that this is about these other couples or about these other relationships. They weren't focused on that as much, but they were equally as involved in this story to bring all these all this big narrative to, to a great ending. Definitely. I think this is very much an ensemble supported movie. And I think that that is part of the beauty in it because you can see the exact same message that's happening with Kat and, um, what is his character's name? Uh, the mean guy? No, um, not Joey. Patrick, thank you. The main, the relationship that's happening with them where they're both fighting what they're supposed to be is also happening between Bianca and Cameron. So it's not just, the lead characters that are going through this battle, it's happening with a lot of the secondary characters or the ensemble supporting cast. And I mean, even, um, oh, I'm so terrible with names. Um, the nerdy AV guy that shows him around. Oh, uh, I'm not going to yeah, lie. On, I had on. the biggest crush on dude. He's great in numbers. He's the reason I watched numbers. Yes. Uh, I love numbers. <laughs> David Krumholtz. He plays Mike. Thank Eckerman, you. Mike Ekman. Mike. Yes. It, I was actually in love with him because of his role in the Santa Claus. So, and that just goes to my obsession with Christmas. Try to understand me. Yes, I was like, please (laughs) don't judge me, listeners, for being attracted to an elf. But I was totally here for it. But, like, even he is fighting who he thinks he has to be. And I think that what I do love about him, though, is that almost his his secondary character has been pretty close to 100% himself the whole movie. And he's, like, kind of this flag, just like Kat's best friend. And that's why I love them ending up together is because throughout the whole movie, regardless of the fact that they don't have a ton of lines, both of them are 100% themselves. They don't really go on a journey with the, the exception of supporting their friends going on that journey. And then they end up together in the end. And I absolutely love that because to me, it was like it was a very wholesome conclusion between the two of them because Mikey, like he obviously knew Shakespeare and he enjoyed it, but he he pushed even further for this girl that he really liked, but he didn't actually change himself. He was able to quote Shakespeare while talking to her off the cuff. Like wasn't like he like pulled out a book and read out of it to her. He already, he was already a fan of the bard. 
So for me, like that extra level for those two specifically was great. But like Bianca and Cameron, you watch them go through the exact same thing of fighting who they think they need to be. Exactly. It's just on different levels. Exactly. And I think that what makes all these guys so great and tying into the to the clever aspect is they felt like I felt like they had confidence in everything they were doing. Like they're I don't think there was one moment where I felt like this person is I mean, there's apprehension for sure, but the way in which they set up the the plot to get Bianca to a party felt very strategic, but it felt very much like we got nothing to lose, so we might as well do this. And I think that's articulated really well with um, with with Mike and um, what's what's Kat's best friend's name? Uh, is it Mandela? I was like, I know what her actual name is. Here's your name, not so much. But is Gabrielle it? Union looks ah. exactly the same. Okay, yeah. So the way that that Michael and I think it's Mandela, how they get together, he you're right. He has no problem quoting Shakespeare because that's what he knows. And I think there's something really appealing about the fact that we don't have we have awkwardness, but it's awkwardness that lives in this high school atmosphere where that's almost not even acceptable. If you look at some of the things that take place in this Chastity. movie. Chastity. That's her name. Chastity. So yeah, that's Terrible yeah, that, name. That's um, yeah, that's Bianca's best friend. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking Kat's best friend, which is I think Mandela. Yeah, sorry, my bad. <laughs> we'll just call her the Bard's love interest or whatever. <laughs> but when I when I look at this movie, of course, everything about the high school is just bonkers. Um, from from Alice and Janie's character as the as the guidance counselor to the things that happen inside the school, like the fact that that Cat flashes the detention teacher or coach and presumably doesn't get any kind of punishment for that. There's a lot that happens in here. He gets shot with an arrow. He gets shot with an arrow and it just feels <laughs> like, oh, one yeah. of my favorite parts of the whole movie. <laughs> but it's so subtle, right? You hear like, oh, and then the camera slowly pans. And you, you see, see it for a second. And then the best rep part is the reference in detention when he goes to sit down and he goes, oh, like it's still too tender. And that's the only, those are the only small moments that you get about it. But I yeah. love it. Cause it's so, like, you're right. It's so clever for those tiny moments. It chooses yeah. it and commits. Without being obnoxious. There's not a wasted scene in this movie. I mean, no, you could, not a single you, one. You could capture a scene and be like, all right, let's just watch that a few times and then go to the next scene and like, oh, we got to capture that one. But I think that it's because of the fact that the creators behind this looked at this atmosphere and they said, you know what? We don't have to make this believable necessarily. We just have to make it uh, connectable. And there's a lot about this atmosphere, this setting, this place, which I'm being told by, by Aaron that we need to plug the fact that this takes place in Seattle and that the school is in Tacoma and that MTV got the name of the mascot wrong in the credits. So there, there's your official plug, Aaron. <laughs> so love for okay, Seattle. Okay, wait, love for first of all, it's not that they got the mascot wrong. They they got a location wrong. They oh. spelled from the Fremont Troll incorrectly. They spelled Fremont wrong. Oh, got it. Okay. Not a mascot, yeah. Sorry about just, that. It's a, it's, a, it's a very big location here in Seattle. And they spelled it wrong. Well, good job. Good job, MTV. Way to be particular on that. Oh, so dependable, MTV. This was going to be a five-star movie for me, but now it dropped down to a four and a half because of that. <laughs> just kidding. 
But no, I, I look at I look at this the setting, and I think that it becomes a playground for the creators to bring in these characters and have them function inside there. But I love there's some hyper realism there. There's like, hey, this probably wouldn't happen, but you probably think there was a rumor about it happening at some point when you were in high school. So let's go ahead and just play that up. I mean, you've got Patrick Verona doing his doing his song and dance. I have never experienced that. I'm sure it may have happened somewhere, but it's probably not something that happens on a regular basis at a high school. If it does, I missed out on something pretty amazing. And I think what that does is that allows these characters to interact with each other in a way that doesn't feel doesn't it feels familiar but doesn't feel boring. It's not like we're watching a biopic of these people in high school. We're seeing high school as the familiarity and so with that certain kind of trust that the creators give us, we can just have fun watching them interact with each other. And I think that's pretty fantastic. That's one of the things I love about the high school uh, movie genre is when you can not just give me a straight, here's what happens in high school, but here's what in your mind you thought was what happened in high school from your perspective. And I feel like some of these things that come out are what people maybe overemphasize, what they remember but really didn't happen because they had such traumatic experiences as that freshman or that senior. And this this movie... I think does that really, really well. Definitely. I think there's something to be said about the, the niche market that is high school movies, because I think that the whole point of a high school movie is it's an exaggerated version of high school, but it's an exaggerated version of any high school that any person watching could have gone to. So I think the, for me, a high school movie is supposed to exaggerate a lot of these tropes. It's supposed to make you feel like, okay, well, that didn't happen for me, but maybe it happened for somebody else, and that's why it's in there. No, I don't think that we all went to high schools that were like Glee, where people just randomly burst into song, or there were, what was the big thing that people were doing like 10 years ago, where they would just get to flash mobs. Uh, flash mobs, that's, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that's something that any of us would be like, oh, no, that was totally my school. But there are moments that are very specific that they chose to choose those tropes in. And I think that it's important because it is exaggerated, but it's not exaggerated to the point where you have to really suspend your disbelief. Like I know for a fact, I went to three different high schools and at one high school, it was very separated in the cafeteria where you had people that sat in clicks. It was very clear by looking at them, what they were into or what their personalities or hobbies were. We had the basketball players that literally would stand in the corner and just like bounce, like they would just dribble their basketball back and forth. We had jocks on other table. Like it was, it, it very well could have been as exaggeratedly separated as they showed in the movie. I know that they did it in the movie for very specific reasons, but to me, like a high school movie is supposed to exaggerate things like that. Now, I'm not saying that it needs to be you know, sheets to the wind. I'm thankful that they didn't take like the AV club nerds to like a third degree level nerd, you know, or anything like that. But the, I think they were very specific with their choices. Um, and I think that that's what, again, continues, like you chose such a great word because this movie really did just make so many clever choices with where they chose to exaggerate instead of exaggerating everything. They made very specific choices, what high school tropes to play into. Um, I mean, to me, Alice and Janney's character is the most exaggerated character in the entire movie, but she's also the best part of the entire movie. Anybody that knows me knows that, like, C.J. Craig is one of the most influential 
television characters of my life next to Leslie Nope. And for me, Allison Janney is what makes this movie. Like the fact that she's a guidance counselor writing a neurotic novel. And still to this day, like I, like I told you before, I really wanted to put in our notes that I wanted quivering member to be a very important thing for me because it was a very important scene. And like, the fact that her and Kat have this witty back and forth and it shows their, they extent of their relationship to where this is obviously not the first time Kat has come to, and you can't see me listeners, but I'm doing air quotes, receive guidance from her guidance counselor. There are obviously some issues where she is seen as um, the shrew would probably be the best word to describe it, ironically, of high school, where she is justifiably angry, but unfortunately everybody that's around her is well behind the times and doesn't understand her rightful uh, anger at the injustices of the world. And I think that the fact that they chose to exaggerate her, but still not in like an insane, crazy way, but in a way that says she's a guidance counselor, but she's still an actual person. Like she still has her own hobbies that are outside of what she does for a living, which guess what? We all do as people. So I think the things that they chose to exaggerate were just very smartly done. Well, and there's a there's a there's a real genuineness to all of these characters that you want to just care about on some level. And when you use a trope, you're using it for one of two reasons: either to amplify the setting that you're in, and we can talk about the social group breakdown or the overbearing father or prom being kind of the two the three big ones. But I think what Ten Things does in a really great way is they use those tropes to amplify ironically the reality of who people actually are and you bring up a great example i mean as the guidance counselor she has another life it's funny because her other life is to make trashy novels but we don't necessarily ding her hey hey, that. hey trashy no Excuse no <laughs> no 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 judgment. No judgment. They are I'm not sorry. trashy. Sorry. Harlequin romance to... novels? Remember, it sounds like a thrilling ride, and I do not mean that like as something other than what it sounds like. That was not a pun. Are we gonna have what to is it for? E I'm looking for episode. pun not intended. That was the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> Look, she puts the word bratwurst in here in her novel. Come on, we gotta we gotta call it for what it is. For all you fa- know, they could be eating German food. This is true. I stand corrected. I will stop with the judgments right now. But in any case, she's got a life outside of this counseling, which you're exactly right. We all do. We all have this second life that exists either as a student or as a teacher. But all these tropes, they don't go so far as to discredit who these people are. So as obnoxious or as out there as she is, there's something about her and specifically with that banter with Kat that give her this kind of humanity. Like, it's almost like they have this genuine respect for each other because they know what's going on. They know the world that they live in. They're very self-aware. But you look at that, and I like to go back to uh, to the uh, to Walter Stratford, the girl's father. He starts out as that typical overbearing father. Don't let your kids do anything. But And he doesn't mellow. He just comes to a realization that things are changing and that he deeply cares about his daughters. In other movies that use that trope, he becomes the punchline for a tirade of his daughters or his kids. And instead, there's reconciliation with with him and Kat near the end, and they have a mutual understanding. So even he's on this journey 
but he's not just a dad, or he's not just a doctor, he's not just an overbearing father, he's also a person, and a person who is missing something, who is being taken out of the game, as he says. I love that line, by the way. I think it's fantastic that you see in that sequence that he's trying to stay connected with his kids, and they're slowly slipping away. So all these characters tend to have some bit of heart that we can latch onto and have some sympathy for, be able to, to root for in some capacity, maybe with the exception of Joey. I don't know. I didn't quite connect with him. I thought maybe. I mean, I root for his modeling career. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, but I, I, and like before we move on to Joey and I mean, Chastity, because again, I didn't mention it before, but they're the polar opposites of Mikey and Mandela. And that's why I also love that they get together at the very end is because they have equal motives they're equally terrible people and they equally deserve each other. So it's the exact opposite of Mandela and Mikey in how they get together and why they get together. And I think that there's beautiful symmetry in that. But um, um, on Kat's dad, honestly, he's one of my favorite characters in this whole movie. And it's I grew up in a family of doctors, so I grew up hearing like horror stories, but they weren't told to us in malicious intent. They were literally told to us in. I want to tell you about the terrible things in this world so that I can protect you from it. Like, I'm talking like you go to bed with stories of like, okay, so tonight we're going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, things like that were somewhat of a regular occurrence in my family because my grandmother was a psychiatrist. She'd worked in op like emergency rooms. It just, it's what happened. But so I understand his internal desire to protect his children from the things that he's seen and the things that he's seen girls their age go through and women that are even older. And he's doing all this by himself. He doesn't have his wife or his partner. He doesn't, he doesn't have that second person to bounce things off of. So we have the gender differences, which, you know, is already already going to be something difficult to overcome. We have the single parent differences. And then we have this shift, like you said, where he says, I'm, I'm realizing that like, if I let you do this, you might just let me sit on the bench and watch you play versus you telling me not even come to the ballpark. So it's it's this beautiful moment, and I think that that's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie is where they're just sitting there, and she she watches her dad kind of go through this in front of her, and if you just, like, watch her face in this moment, it's really a beautiful realization. Like, Julia Stiles does a, does a brilliant job in this movie. I feel like she hasn't aged at all, so she could still play that high schooler, and I kind of want her to. I, I, and I, I just fell in love with her watching this. She is... You know, if I'm going to be straight up honest, she's the reason that I watch this. And not just because she's beautiful. I love her character. And I love the fact that she gets that. It's not just teen angst. It's it's almost like legitimate. Like, it's not just being feminist. It's not just being an a just a crabby teenager. She has motive. She's not just mean oh, I to would, be I wouldn't even say it's like it's like legitimate. I would say, like, all of her anger is 100% justified. And I think a lot of the reason why her and Patrick work is because Patrick lets her be angry. He does not fight her. He does not tell her that her her anger is, you know, unfounded or unjustified or that, you know, like, oh, there he's not a silver lining boyfriend. And that's why I love his character is that he also has a dark side, which is great. But he doesn't say cat like hold on to the, the like, what do people get like, oh, look at the silver lining or the grass is always greener. Like, no, he's like, yeah, I get it. He's like, so instead of you being angry, let's uh, let's go do this instead. Cool. Like he lets her just be angry and that's okay. He doesn't try to make her justify why she feels what she feels. He's not the problem solver. He's the problem alleviator and acknowledging her pain, but not acknowledging that she needs to sit there, that he can stay there with her 
if if he needs to, or that they can do something that's going to, at least for the time being, remedy that. And I think there's some real value in that as a boyfriend because of the fact that he's giving her space to be her and he's validating who she is, which I think is something that's set up early on with her relationship with Bianca because there's this, there's this definite contrast, this deliberate contrast between the two of them. And like any movie that starts you off with a cliche or a stereotype that eventually rounds itself out, which these characters definitely do, you get this sense of she's mean for mean's sake. She just she listens to, how did Patrick put it, girls who can't play their instruments? Is that what he called it? <laughs> <laughs> but when they get together and as they're getting together, there's this great moment. Oh, I love it. It almost, it was one of my many connecting points that we're going to explain how many we actually have at some point, I imagine. But it's, I feel like I'm what, up to like 37 at this point. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. We can, you know, we're, we're lo- fast and loose here, right here. But we, there's a moment when he's in the, uh, when he's in the, the club that's, I guess, doing girls night or whatever. And he sees her dancing with Mandela and she's just completely unhinged. Like she has no tension whatsoever. Where most of the time that's what we see. We see her her body language emits this sense of don't touch me, don't talk to me, I'm closed off. And there's this smile that he gives. Like at that moment I felt like he was thinking, I don't need the money. She's someone I want to pursue. There's something about her that is mysterious and appealing and worth going after. And then, of course, it sets up that whole bit at the at the bar where she sees him and she and she makes that face where she's like, "Really, really, you're here." And then he just completely the epitome face. I just love that face so much. <laughs> okay. I use that face on a daily basis. She's like, "Ugh." Yeah, that's exactly what if it is. If that sound could it's be a facial expression, that's what it is. Like, "Ugh." Uh, oh my gosh. My six-year-old does that every once in a while. When, <laughs> when, when I say, you going to brush your teeth before bed? <laughs> Just yeah. tell her to stop being cat. Be stop like, be cat. more of a Bianca. <laughs> Wear pearls or something. It would be weird. I was just going to say, go brush your teeth in your mother's pearls. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's awkward, son. Don't do that. Um, but that begins, I think, what is probably, in my opinion, one of the best parts of the movie. It's them playing this kind of verbal intellectual ping pong with each other because he's all armed with this knowledge of what she likes and what she doesn't and and she's like okay what's going on and then you would expect in a typical stereotypical way he would say so i'll pick you up later he goes or how does he say it he says uh he says so you know go to the party with me she's like uh is that, is that a no no is that a yes no so she leaves it very ambiguous but you know it's probably going to happen but that's the nature of their relationship she's not giving him any more than she needs to and he likes that because it's enough for him to know that okay she wants me to pursue her and i think that's a unique way to start that kind of relationship and frankly it's it's a fun ride from the from the rest of that from that moment on Definitely. And I think the the thing that I love the most about their relationship is, like I said, the freedom of expression to where her desire to be nothing but herself with him 
allows like she does nothing to break down any of his walls but him just being with her is what takes his walls down and i love that i love that she's not like why don't you talk to me or like you should share more about yourself he just sees somebody that's wholly and completely themselves and he realizes maybe that's okay and i think there's just there's such beauty in that there is and there's a great scene after they've gone to the i want to say it's the paintball park paint balloon park uh, gasworks park yeah gasworks which is apparently a real place i was reading some trivia and every place that yes, was shot is. is a real place so fantastic yep. that high school that they're in is in tacoma that's right misspelled and otherwise you know, or not fremont <laughs> um there's a moment when they are hanging out on the porch and they're essentially like she's grilling him on these little pieces of feedback and he's grilling her and what's great about that is none of them are actual answers, hearsay, uh, halfway, half truth, things like that. Like there's nothing like a straight answer. And then she says, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing noncommittal. Like everything is noncommittal in his answers. Yeah. And so she says, tell me something real. And then even that he jokes and says, I don't like peas. And she goes, no, I mean something, or she says, tell me something true. And he says, I don't like peas. And she goes, no, tell me something real. And he hesitates. That is real. Peas are disgusting. You haven't met the peas that I've I've met. No, gross. My boyfriend's <laughs> from Ireland, and he's all about mushy peas, and I don't even want to look at them. Peas don't have to be mushy. They don't have to be mushy. They can I be know. I've had, I've had whole peas. I've had mushy peas. I don't want any kind of peas. I stand with Patrick. He's allowed to hate peas. <laughs> okay. He is allowed. That's that's a good part of the relationship. They let they let themselves be each other. Wait. They let each other be themselves. Strike that rule. <laughs> Sorry, little Willie. They change there. personalities. It's a body swap, and it turns into Freaky Friday. Oh, my gosh. There we go. <laughs> but it isn't until the actual dance where where he says, I was in Detroit or wherever he was. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, hanging out with my, with my grandfather. And eating SpaghettiOs. Eating SpaghettiOs. That, to me, is a very vulnerable moment because that's nothing of what you'd expect him to be. But it's that moment where he feels comfortable. And you know the big conflict is coming. You know the big reveal is happening. This is this is what Hallmark thrives on, the miscommunication part of all their movies. This These types of moments are what make their movies, like, tops for my wife. Uh, is like, oh, that one moment where... You get yeah, the it's truth. the big switch. It's the yeah. big flip. Like, it's the flip of the climax. Which is not uncommon in most movies. But I find it very interesting that they place that part of the vulnerability, they place that moment of vulnerability right at that moment instead of when they're having this intimate moment on the uh, on the porch. They let, it, they let that tension kind of lie there for a little bit because we know as an audience that he's been taking money to, to take her out, but we also know that his feelings have changed. And so it gets even worse when she tells him, hey, I'm sorry I doubted you. And, she, you know, this is, this, these moments are filled with this vulnerability that we're like, oh, my gosh, this is going to become a train wreck when, when this all comes out. And then when it does, of course, your heart sinks and it's like, oh, my gosh, how's this going to resolve? But I think that's pretty cool because most of this movie really stems – there's a lot of themes in here, but a couple that I picked up on – have to do with this notion of fitting in versus being accepted. And I think that at the very beginning, we get that set up from, um, uh, from Mikey about introducing Cameron to all the different cliques. And Mikey, who is confident in who he wants to be, 
doesn't necessarily want to be a part of that clique anymore, the MBAs. He wants to get revenge. He's kind of his own man, and he's kind of comfortable in his own skin. But there's a sense of a of a background like curtain here of like, here's who you should fit, where you should fit. You're either this or that or this or that. And of course, Cat represents the opposite of that. You don't need to be any of those things. You can completely be yourself. But there's a common thread that runs through all these characters, including um, including uh, Chastity and uh, and Joey, in that we want to find someone that we connect to. We want to find someone that we have some, not just something in common, but something real in common. And real could be relative to any one of these guys. For Michael and Mandela, it was their love for Shakespeare and the romantic part of the bard and what he brings to, to them individually. For Patrick and Kat, it was about being real with each other and fighting through that tension because they weren't being real with themselves. And I like the fact that we got not just resolution with all those, but we got different journeys with that common thread. We didn't get the same story with all of these different couples that were coming to a, a place of, of realization about what they actually wanted. Cameron needed that tension with Bianca to understand what he really wanted. Like there's this great moment when they're sitting in the car and he goes, are you always this selfish? And she just kind of mumbles, yes. I didn't expect that line the first time I heard this. The first time I watched this movie, I was like... I love that moment so much. Her self-realization where she's just like, nobody's ever told me that I can't be. Yeah. And that that's what I think I love about the, like the, the differences between Bianca and Cameron versus Kat and Patrick. Mm-hmm. Is that you see a softening in Kat that is far more emotional and you see a softening in Bianca that's more about letting go of everybody else's expectations of her. Right. So it's, she's the kind of girl that's never been told. No, she's the kind of girl that gets what she wants. She can pout her eyes and ask daddy for anything and it will happen. And if she plays her cards, right, she could be with somebody like Joey who would just let her be the best arm candy in the world. And she could get away the rest of her life without ever hearing the word. No. And then she realizes that when somebody calls her out on her crap, that, there's somebody out here that actually wants to challenge me to be a better version of myself. I've never experienced this before. And not like her dad doesn't want her to be the best version of herself, but her, his dad, her dad also is alone in a house full of women. He just wants to keep the peace probably for about five seconds. Well, I think, so, he, I, yeah, his motives I think are, are different in that he, yes, he wants to keep the peace, but his motives are purely about, I want to keep these guys, these I want to keep these these women in my house as long as possible. I want to hold on to them as long as possible. And if it means letting my daughter Kat be this rebel and do her own thing and not go to Sarah Lawrence, or if it means Bianca needing to do all these other things and having all this validation but not dating anyone, then I'm fine. But you're right. I, I think there's a really great shift. And I'd like to believe in this world that's been created that through that conversation that, not through it, but maybe as an example, the conversation that Kat has when she admits why she is the way she is, partly to do with Joey, I think Bianca pulls that from her, pulls that kind of confidence from her, and she pulls that vulnerability or that softness from Bianca. But I think it says a lot about their relationship. I'd like to believe that they've probably never been close. They've just always been at odds, which is what siblings do. My brother's four years older than me, and 
it took me going to college and getting married and having that common ground with him to actually find a little bit of like, yeah, he's my brother beyond just, we share the same bloodline, like having that kind of common ground. And, and through that relationship, I've had the ability to kind of gain some character traits of his that I really, really am grateful for. Hope that's the same way from his point of view, maybe a four year difference, uh, doesn't allow for that. But I think when you, when you look at Kat and Bianca as sisters, seeing how they sort of, not play off each other, but really absorb the best parts of each other as the movie goes on, even if they don't realize it, it rounds out their characters in a way that makes you just want them to have the, everything that they that they desire. For Cat, it's not getting Patrick. For Cat, it's being uh, being someone who is loved and adored because she's who she is, not because she's met someone's criteria. Bianca, I think, is the same way in a sense, but she needed somebody like Cameron to say, you're more than what's on your face and what's on your body. And you need to realize that I'm not telling you that you're selfish to just tell you the truth. I'm telling you you're selfish because there's more about you that I like. I like the fact that he fights for her throughout the entire movie. The fact that he doesn't listen to Michael. The fact that he says, look, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But it's when he realizes that he might be right that he lets her know that. And then, of course, there's that magical kiss, I guess you could say, air quotes. And then, he, and then that great high school reaction, yeah, I'm back. And then he takes off. Um, but I think that their relationship equally as much is uh, just as entertaining and, and is just as much full of, of learning moments or lessons as as Kat and Patrick are. One hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And then there's the classic moment of where'd she kiss you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like in the car in the, in the car? Front. Yeah. <laughs> and his face. Oh my gosh, that little like what, really? Like <laughs> Like Heath Ledger's like, Oh my gosh, you're such a noob. Yeah, he's like, You don't know this stuff at all. Uh let me just say I miss Heath Ledger. I I, I think I can't. Uh, I don't wanna mm mm. We're not going to go down that road. All right, coming back to coming back to this road. Well, you mentioned earlier about how, uh, with your one word takeaway, I want to expand on that for for just a couple of minutes uh, before we move on. In what ways do you feel like the movie feels like the '90s, but at the same time it feels like it's relevant and current today? I know we've touched on a little bit of that, but is there anything specific about it that you could point out that says? This is why it's the 90s, and that's why it's great, and this is why it's still relevant today, and that's why it's great. I mean, I think the fight against misogyny and the fight for the true root of feminism will never not be relevant. And I know it's a double negative, but I'm accepting it because it's true, and it's one of those things where it has just as much to do with equality and how Kat is labeled by so many of her peers as a man-hater, and that's not what feminism is about at all, and it's never been about that, but unfortunately... There are people that say they do things in the, you know, in the light for feminism and they misconstrue what the true root of it is that if you are a woman, you deserve to be as equally treated as a man, period, regardless of your gender, regardless of your actions, you deserve to be treated equally. And I think that that fight will unfortunately never stop. And I think that why that's why that part of the movie it will forever be relevant. 
But everything that's 90s in that movie is so fantastic. Like, I love all of the fashion choices. And the fact that crop tops and chokers are coming back right now is giving me life. I will never wear a crop top, but I respect the game of crop top wearers around the world. Um, all of the movie in this, all the music in this movie hits so hard still to this day. I love teen angsty music. I have always loved teen angsty music. My boyfriend thinks it's the funniest thing because he, I like to describe my boyfriend as beige and he thinks it's the funniest thing. My boyfriend is just very beige in a lot of ways, not in every way, but in a lot of ways. And I used to be like a punk rock princess. I wore fishnets. I had plaid skirts and Doc Martens and I mean, I've got tattoos, like I have a nose piercing. So we, we are very different and we had very different music tastes growing up. And so to this day, he'll like, I'll ask him like, hey, put on some of the Clash or the Ramones. And he'll look at me like, okay. <laughs> but like all the music in this movie just hits so hard. And I think that between the messages of the film, the fashion choices, the music, and the fact that high schools are still a big pile of uh, bull hockey, like, and that there's so much more to life outside of high school, the messages of this movie aren't ever going to go away. And I love that it was that 20 years later, it is still so well done that another high school movie, in my opinion, probably will not ever compare to it. Yeah, this is um, this is one of those movies that, by the way, I completely agree with everything you said. I think that um, when I <laughs> when when the uh, the ska music started happening in the movie i was like wow yeah that's definitely the 90s the late 90s kind of because i was into ska i love the horns and i love the you know with the with the guitars and it to me it's like chick-fil-a uh where i loved it and now i just can't stand it i got too much of it at one mm. point and now i'm just not a i'm not a ska person anymore i could probably embrace it again but with with slow but there's just there's a respect for it though there's a respect for its existence and it's it's moment in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it pinpoints a moment in my life. I can remember when I used to listen to ska a lot and I remember the circumstances around my life at that moment, not necessarily like traumatic experiences or anything like that, but I remember, Oh yeah, I was listening to this when we were doing these things. And I, there's a lot about it that I, that it's really good. I think the music itself is just not something I want to revisit, but I like the fact that, it does exist in a movie like this because it does take me back to the fact that that's a period piece music right there. We don't hear a lot of that anymore. And the fact that we get that type of fashion that may be making a comeback, but it really, really excelled in that time period. The fact that this takes place in 1999, which is arguably the best movie year ever, according to the book that I'm reading, says a lot about the fact that a lot changed after that. When I'm the, sorry, wait, 1999 is not the best year for movies. I'm sorry, I will rebuff that. I'm not saying it wasn't a good year for movies, but Sarah, a uh, film critic, and I were talking on Twitter the other day, and 93, 93 okay. was everything. Jurassic That's, Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, like so good. I, I'm I'm not arguing with you at all. I'm saying I'm that arguing the, with the book. Okay. <laughs> Let me finish it, and then we can have a. I can represent the book, and and you can rebut it if you want. That may make some good bonus content or something like that. But in any case, it was a good year for movies. I guess we can agree with that, right? You got Ten Things, you got um, Fight Club. Anyway, I, I digress. But I think that this is a this is a time capsule movie because it captures the moment of the of the late '90s that we don't want to forget. Like 
I grew up in the 80s, and so anytime I think about let's have a retro party, it's going to be the 80s. I rarely think about let's have a let's have a 90s party. But when I watch 10 Things I Hate About You, I think maybe I should have a 90s party because there's a lot about this that's really a lot of fun. And you're exactly right. When we think about high school, there are things about it that I don't think will will ever change. I graduated two years prior from this movie coming out. So I was well into into college at this point. But even 20-plus years later, I'm talking to folks who have kids that are in high school, and they're telling me stories that happen here. There are still cliques. There are still weird coaches and weird teachers that say things that are like kind of bonkers. But the relatability of this and being able to say, you know what? I was that guy. I was the nerd. I was the AV guy. I was the the awkward person that had lunch by himself or that had a penis drawn on his face. I didn't have that, by the way. Uh, but there, there are pockets of things that I can relate to. I was the to. person that drew it on people's faces. I bet you were. You were. <laughs> I was yeah, such a I'm, bad kid. <laughs> I would imagine. I literally used to draw it on everything, though. Like, we had a long, I know this is tangent, but we used to have a long running joke in one of our history classes where who could draw something somewhere in the classroom and put it up so that everybody could see and how long it would take our teacher to notice. That's amazing. And it was always penises, so everybody in the entire class would just try to draw a penis and wait until our teacher would notice. I digress. <laughs> I apologize, but. Never apologize for stuff like that. This, if, there's a, if there's an episode of this podcast that's appropriate to talk about penises, it's this one. Accurate. And how many times can we say penis without just getting really I don't awkward? know. I mean, but penis is such a great word. I feel like penis don't penis anymore. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Woo. I'm sweating. This is what happens when 1.0 leaves us alone. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He would be sitting back going, I've lost control of the whole situation. <laughs> but you know what? You're not here, Aaron, so I am yeah. i don't apologize so, for anything. penis, penis, penis. <laughs> penis, penis, penis. <laughs> Listeners, we're not going to tell him that we said all this, so when he listens back, it'll be hilarious. <laughs> yes, please, nobody, nobody ruin this. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Oh, I'm sorry. Good. Continue what you're saying. I apologize. Well, I, I, I think I think we're good to move into connecting points. This <laughs> All right, connect away. I really connected to the penis on the face moment, actually, quite a bit. Here's a little inside baseball. I was reading some of the IMDb trivia, and David Krumholtz actually had to show Andrew Keegan how to draw a penis. How to draw it? I saw. I heard or that. how to draw how to draw a testicles because he didn't know how to. So I'm just imagining like on set, <laughs> David's like, "All right, come over here, Andrew. I want to show you something." He's got this wall. <laughs> he's like, first you do this, and then you you wrap it around here, and then." Or he's got various examples where he's like, "Now, depending on if you want a shy set of testicles, or if yeah. you want something that's you know really just going for it, and you want to just yeah. wow people, then draw this set." <laughs> Like exhibit an A, exhibit wall B, expression. exhibit C, <laughs> and Keegan's like, dude, you got like eighteen exhibits here. We're on exhibit Q here. What's going on? It's like, look, you got to be thorough when it comes. I'm to just trying to make sure that you're thorough, exactly. Yeah, and then Making you got to sure have options. You got to make sure, you know, because you talked about the curve of a face, and you know, I'm 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 seeing that trivia as I'm watching the movie, and I'm going, yeah, he kind of messed up on the tip of the on of the right finger. by the mouth, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time I see it, definitely. I'm like, like ugh, that's amateur. 
I mean, sure, he doesn't know. Clearly, he hasn't. He'd been never survive my history class. He wouldn't. So, as a side note, before we move into connecting points, would you be considered? Would would this you and your and your boyfriend? Would this be a would this be a cat uh, Cameron relationship? Would that be kind of the closest we can get to that? Between me and my boyfriend? Yeah, like how you are right now. Would you be the cat and he'd be like Cameron? Does he? I feel like he'd be if Cameron and Mikey like were mixed. Because okay. my boyfriend works in finance, so my boyfriend's ah. definitely more nerdy about things like like I'm more nerdy about like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, like much more like fantasy based nerd. He is a str- I always describe people I'm like he's a strictly nonfiction reader. That's usually the way that I describe him. He's a very um feet on the ground kind of person. Gotcha. And so I always like to call him. I I know it sounds cheesy, but I like to call him my anchor because I always have my head in the clouds and he keeps me grounded. That's a great so, balance. That's a great yeah. balance. Well, I hope that you and Michael Cameron <laughs> Micron Micron <laughs> succeed in all that you do with with your teen angst music and MBAs and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right, oh my god, that, I do think he actually has an MBA. Would not surprise me at all at this point. <laughs> Penis. When I you know, just Penis. <laughs> All right, Aaron, do you want to oh, he's get us? Hate us. Oh. At yeah, this point, um, at this point, who cares? Let's let's move into the connecting points, and unless they're about a quivering member, then um, then we'll start with you. I mean, they are, but um, <laughs> I think my biggest connecting po- moment in this, no pun intended, is the moment where Kat and Bianca sit on the porch, and they both have that realization. It's after the prom, and Bianca's trying to offer kind of the olive branch and she's like, are you sure you don't want to come sailing with me and Cameron? Like, it'll be fun. And Kat's just sitting there reading and she's really just reflecting on everything that's happened. And this all happened the night before. So it's not like it's been, you know, a week and she's had time to digest everything, but there's this moment where Bianca's just like, I hope you know how much you coming last night meant to me. Like, so she is acknowledging the fact that, even though it ended terribly for Kat, and even though it was all of this humiliation, Bianca didn't want her to think that that was the only thing that happened that night. Bianca wanted to remind Kat that what she did and why she did it is what she appreciated. And I think that that's such a beautiful moment. Um, for me, that was a really big, like, just softening for both of them, where Bianca's like, you're not a terrible sister, and I know that you kept a lot of things from me, and I get that you were protecting me, but... The fact that she went last night proves that she trusts her at this point to earn the rest of her life on her own merits and that she trusts her with Cameron to help her get to that point. And I think that that's a really beautiful moment. Um, I think that and um, there is there are probably two other moments that I really connected with. There is a moment where we talked about it a little earlier, so I'm not going to fully go into it. But the moment where her dad gives her the check for Sarah Lawrence. I think that again, that's a moment where it's a, it's, there are a lot of just like come to Jesus moments at the tail end of this film. Um, and obviously I get it because it's, you know, resolutions are starting to happen in movies and everything has to kind of come to a close. But I think one of my favorite moments is also there's a moment after Kat has flashed to get Patrick out of detention where they are taking the paddle boats across Lake Washington and they just have this very real heart to heart about who Kat is and why. And not the why, like, oh, I did this because, you know, I realized that after I dated Joey, like, none of that actual crap mattered. She really just talks about 
the day-to-day choices that she makes to be solely who she was meant to be in her bones. And I, it's just, it's just a really great moment of her owning her truth and realizing that it's not that she has to be labeled as a feminist and it's not that she has to be labeled as this angry woman, but she's just herself and she's justified in being that person. And I, I absolutely just love that, that moment because Patrick just sits there and listens. And I think that that's really beautiful. And I think that, that's probably one of my one of my more favorite moments in there next to the moment between her and Bianca. Yeah, I think anything on the porch is a win for this movie. Like I think all the It's a magical the porch. It's a magical porch. I mean it's a wraparound, I think, so that's fantastic, I think. Um but you're right, that, that paddle boat scene, what stands out to me is the fact that she kinda tells us as an audience that it's difficult to be different. Not be different, but it's difficult to be yourself because there's so much pressure to fall into a category. So she doesn't, she has to almost work twice as hard just to be herself, which is a very true statement because it's really easy to say, well, I could be this or I could be that. And it's not arrogance. I think it's just a reality of her saying, I want to be myself and I'm trying to find out who that is, but there's so much noise around me to be this or that or this or that. And I think having that moment to tell Patrick that while he just listens makes her feel like, okay, if I could just be able to breathe out for a minute, that's a little bit of tension that's released. And for her, I think that's what elevates their relationship in a way that um, that makes that that relationship really just fantastic. So for me, I picked two because, you know, it's our show and we can do whatever. But I think they both really tie together well. The big thing that I realized taking away from from this viewing is the amount of vulnerability that exists. Not, I mean, like in most of the characters, but I'll specifically call out Patrick and Kat because they are kind of the centerpiece in this. And the speech and the song and dance show what I believe are the most, I won't say the most, but two of the more vulnerable moments for both of these characters. The song and dance comes as a result of him being told, you got to throw yourself down on the altar of shame. She put herself out there and she was embarrassed. You got to do that. And so it's a, it's a hilarious moment. It's one that's unexpected. It's incredibly entertaining. And as I think about it, I don't feel like he lost much in terms of like, wow, I'm completely going to, you know, throw myself into this. I felt like he was having a great time. But that moment for him was a chance to tell her, look, I'm willing to do something that's completely unconventional to who I portray myself as to let you know that this is a part of the real me. I can sing, I can dance, I can perform something that I wouldn't show anybody else. And yet I'm giving you this as a way to say, I want you to see this part of me, not just forgive me, but let, you know, let me show you this part of me. And when you couple that with the speech at the end, which I love the fact that you, when I was reading some of this trivia, it took one take for her to recite that speech. So everything about that moment and her tearing up and getting emotional was one take and completely genuine. But what did it for me is when she was getting to the end of that, when she said, but the worst thing about this is that I don't hate you, not one bit, not at all. The the expression on Patrick's face, where he has his hands covering up his mouth slightly, and you see him just kind of, 
not trembling, but he fe- it's almost like he feels this moment of weakness, like, oh my gosh, I have completely crushed this woman. And yet she's still willing to put herself out there and say, I care about you. I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to lose me, or I don't want to lose you. I loved his facial expression. I've actually felt that way. I feel like I've given that facial expression when something has hit me as emotionally as it does. Like I want to just in that moment just break down and cry, but I'm kind of holding it in. And I felt like he was doing that, not because he wanted to hold back, but because he was like, I can't believe how deeply she cares for me. And I've completely crushed her. It kind of makes that last moment where she gets the fender strat a little bit less satisfying because that was such a heavy, you know, heavy, <laughs> a heavy scene and a heavy moment that the lighthearted ending was satisfying, but I don't feel like it paid off that moment as much. I don't know what would have solved that, but I felt like there was such a great weight to that moment that it needed something just a little bit more. Maybe he ran, runs after her or maybe, maybe he grabs her. She's running. I don't know. Um, I didn't write the story and, it ended up just fine. But those two moments, I think, really spoke to the vulnerability of both of those guys and how they wanted to show that to one another as a means to say, hey, I'm with you. I'm, I hear you, and I want to be with you, not just as your boyfriend or girlfriend, but because we fit, we work together, and I, I don't want that to ever end. So with that, we have finished the penis conversation and everything else that went with it. <laughs> it's just such a great movie, and I just... Uh, penis. Penis. <laughs> That'll be the exclamation point for any Ten kind of like... things I hate about penis. Yep. <laughs> Somebody's well, going to than It's better than like 10 penis I hate about penis. Whoa, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> would not, would not... I don't think I'd want to watch that movie. That'd be kind of weird. <laughs> Aaron, it's been so great to have you back on to talk about this movie. Um, how can people find you online to find out more about who you are and to make sure that you aren't just whelmed here and there? Well, I like to live in that whelmed space you know, pretty frequently. However, you can find me on Twitter, Aaron underscore Hundley. My first name is spelled kind of wonky. It's E-R-Y-N-N-E. <laughs> you can also find me on Instagram under Essentially Aaron and at EssentiallyAaron.com. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up another episode of Feelin' Film. If you're a patron and anal like me, you have waited to listen to some great bonus content where we talk why we love movies like these, a.k.a. high school-centric movies. If you aren't, you better get on that. You can check that out at uh, patreon.com slash feelinfilm. All the deets are in there. Get on it. Donate. Do whatever you can. Lots of good stuff that you can get back for supporting the show. Anyway, Aaron, thank you for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Yes. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, 
thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.